Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the late 1700s, a royal scandal rocked the whole of England. A prince begrudgingly married a princess whom he'd never met, and the relationship was doomed from the start. An oppressive and adulterous husband led to a disgruntled princess with time on her hands, and so began many years of public humiliation for them both, resulting in a bitter battle which raged for the rest of their lives, until one of them mysteriously passed away. This time on Macabre London, we'll be uncovering the story of Caroline of Brunswick, the injured Queen of England. As a royal heir, there wasn't much for George IV, son of King George III, to do but to sit around and rack up debts. George, who was first in line to the throne, was an extravagant man who was interested in the finer things in life. George had an obsession with interior decoration and as such indulged in making home improvements to Buckingham Palace, the original royal residence in London, Windsor Castle and even commissioning the incredibly fanciful Royal Pavilion in Brighton as a coastal retreat. George spent vast amounts of money on cosmetics and perfumes so he could look and smell expensive. It seemingly worked, as throughout his whole adult life, he always had a few mistresses on the go at the same time, leading to plenty of rumours that he had fathered several illegitimate children before he was 30, and earning him a reputation as a ladies' man. Whilst George acted frivolously and partied his days and nights away, his father, the King of England, was starting to show signs of what was referred to as madness. He was beginning to experience several health issues which were confusing to his physicians. In retrospect, and with today's medical advancements, his condition could be described as porphyria, a condition where the body attacks the nervous system, which can lead to changes in the brain, but no one knows for certain quite what the diagnosis was. This meant that the king was not able to carry out his duty as he once had, 
and even though Parliament couldn't act on any business without the King's approval, they had to override the royal rule and to seek a royal representative. Even though the Prime Minister at the time, William Pitt the Younger, was opposed to the foppish George making the royal decisions, the House of Lords made the overriding decision, and so began his relationship with the government, which would mould the rest of his life. Once the King had recovered, he agreed that should he once again suffer another lapse of his mental health, the Prince should act in his place. For the general public, George was not regarded highly. His extravagant lifestyle didn't endear him with commoners, and he found himself largely disliked. In order to make himself more pliable and palatable to the public, he needed to marry. Equally, he was bribed by Parliament, who would give him a yearly grant to keep them sweet, and also so his debts may be cleared. By this point, George owed around £160,000 in debt, around £20 million in today's money, and his government grant was enough to be able to clear that comfortably. There weren't many suitors for George, but one who did stand out was Princess Caroline of Brunswick. For George's bride-to-be, there were a small amount of requisites that had to be sought, and luckily Caroline met all of these. She was young enough at the age of 26 to bear a child, and equally was said to be a virgin, and she was Protestant, as it was illegal for any other faith to enter into the royal domain, and she must come from royal lineage. One negatable problem was that she was in fact George's first cousin, being the daughter of his father's sister, Princess Augusta. As such, this meant that the union, even though morally questionable, would be beneficial for the family as a whole. The fact that they were related was overlooked, as Caroline would be financially and figuratively well kept, and the prince would have his bank account boosted. After hearing the news that a bride had been found for him, George exclaimed that any German Frau were as good as any other. He was more concerned that the marriage happened quickly, so he could get on with his life and settle his debts. However, he was about to learn that his assumptions of all women being the same was a deeply and profoundly incorrect judgement. Caroline was brought up without much input from her mother and father, but she adored both of them regardless. She was often sequestered in her room without much entertainment, forbidden from even looking out of the windows. Her father had many public mistresses and wasn't opposed to having them live at the family home. He was far from discreet when it came to keeping them away from his wife, and unfortunately for Caroline, she was about to find out how her mother felt firsthand. From the outset of his and Caroline's relationship, George didn't even entertain the idea that he might be required to give up his raucous lifestyle in order to have a happy marriage. He instead felt that any woman who was to marry him should be well aware of this fact and made sure that Caroline knew full well what she was marrying into. Caroline was mildly disgruntled at the fact that she would need to share her husband with other mistresses, but the pros of finances and a nice palace did outweigh the cons of staying in Brunswick without much else to do. James Harris, a member of Parliament, was given the task of retrieving Caroline from Brunswick and delivering her to the Prince. Caroline was very much looking forward to becoming the Princess of Wales, but she did voice her concerns of the Prince's raucous lifestyle and said she had received several letters confirming her suspicions from those that were close to the Prince. Harris confirmed that she need not worry, and that all would be fine once she got to England and married the Prince. Harris was expecting Caroline to be a demure and quiet woman, as she was said to be lacking in personality, but that wasn't quite the truth. Caroline was rather outspoken, and not easy to offend, and this was reflected in the unladylike ways which she displayed herself. 
she dressed extravagantly, veering away from the restrictive and modest fashions of the time, and her personal hygiene left something to be desired. Instead of reporting any of Caroline's unusual character traits back to the prince, Harris, knowing that the prince didn't really care at all about who he was marrying, went ahead in rushing Caroline to England. He did know, however, that there was one thing that the prince wouldn't stand for, and that was Caroline's unusual scent. Caroline's lady-in-waiting was informed by Harris that she would need to scrub up significantly in order to please the prince. She was told that due to her permeating odour, she would need to observe better hygiene practices and more importantly to smell better, as she was rather pungent. She also had to be better dressed, as her outfits were far too garish for that of a young and elegant princess. Smelling better, Caroline was now ready to meet her prince, and Harris took her to England. Caroline was shipped to London, and her new lady-in-waiting was presented to her. Frances Villas, who was better known as Lady Jersey, was a high-society woman who at the age of 40 was a grandmother and had ten children of her own, so it would be best placed to help the princess through her role as a mother to a royal heir. When Caroline arrived at the royal residence, Lady Jersey told Caroline that she was definitely not in suitable attire to meet the prince, and that she should change. Lady Jersey produced a much more regal outfit for her to wear, but Caroline was most annoyed by Lady Jersey's suggestion that she was badly dressed. However, as she knew that the first impression of her to the prince would be a momentous occasion, she accepted the dress, but still wore an enormous feathered hat, not wanting to completely adhere to the rules she had been given. Before they met, the pair had only been shown a singular portrait of each other, and both were said to have been pleased at what they saw. However, at their first meeting, Prince George took one look at Caroline and exclaimed, Pray, I am not well, get me a glass of brandy, turned on his heels and fled. Caroline, too, was disparaging of George's appearance, saying that he wasn't as handsome as his painting. Later that evening, in the hope that the two may bond over a candlelit dinner, a small celebration was held, and the pair dined together in the company of Lady Jersey and Harris. Caroline was entertaining at the dinner, and spoke a lot, telling stories and generally being loud. This instantly annoyed George, and he was dismayed at her behaviour, and found her to be almost disgusting. Not able to pick up on the tone in the room, and perhaps becoming slightly inebriated, Caroline made jibes at Lady Jersey throughout the meal, being unkind about her age and her buxom figure. She also alluded to Lady Jersey being George's mistress, something which made everyone around the table incredibly uncomfortable. Harris was disappointed at Caroline's behaviour, as she was being overtly vulgar, and not adhering to the demure and most importantly quiet manner in which she'd been briefed upon by him before they left Brunswick. The first impression of Caroline would be what immediately alienated her to George, and he instantly regretted his decision to send someone to arrange his marriage on his behalf. After voicing his concerns with Harris, he was politely reminded that his briefing was to find him a wife quickly, and at no point was he told to assess her character. Knowing the marriage needed to be quick in order to pay off his debts as fast as possible, permission was sought from the king so the pair could be married, and just three days after meeting, they were married at St James's Palace. Before the evening of the wedding, in order to steady his nerves, George indulged in a large amount of brandy, and had to be steadied during his vows. Many thought this was because he didn't want to marry Caroline, but there was actually another issue the prince was concealing. He was, in fact, already married. 
1785, ten years before his marriage to Caroline, George had married Maria Fitzherbert, a commoner without royal lineage, and had done so in secret without permission from the royal household. The young prince was obsessed with Maria, who was at 27, five years his senior. However, Maria wasn't quite so endeared to George. He tried several times to marry her, but she refused his proposals. The two had met after Maria had been widowed for the second time, and she was bequeathed with the fortune of £1,000 a year, around £52,000 in today's money, plus gifted the marital home, which gave her a disposable income with which she could socialise with the upper echelons of society. This was how she met George after a night at the opera. After their initial meeting, George began to pursue Maria and asked her to be his mistress. However, Maria didn't want to be resigned to a life living in the shadows as a quietly kept mistress, and as such, told him she didn't relish his proposal. George upped the stakes and asked her to marry him, making her more than just a mistress, but his wife. Maria was a twice-widowed Catholic, and it was forbidden for Catholics to marry into the royal family, and furthermore, no royal could marry anyone without the permission of the king. As his father wasn't too keen on his son, the prince knew this definitely wouldn't be allowed. And equally, even if the prince did marry her, Maria knew she would never be able to publicly be his wife, and as such, would never be granted the title of the Princess of Wales. 22-year-old George loved Maria so much that he even showed her that he was willing to die for her. And one day, when visiting him after another rebuffed proposal, she was presented with a recumbent prince who was covered in blood and who said he'd stabbed himself in the stomach for her to show his devotion to their relationship. George then presented her with a ring, which she accepted, but which George announced was a binding agreement to marry him, trapping Maria into an agreement she wasn't thoroughly enthralled with. In actuality, the stab wound he'd inflicted on himself was entirely fake, and all he'd done was pick at an old scab on his torso, and then smeared the resulting blood around his stomach in a display of feigned needy self-mutilation. Well aware that a secret marriage wasn't what she really wanted, Maria fled England and went to Europe to escape the nuptials, but with threats from George that he was going to denounce his royal lineage and leave England to find her, and as such removing himself from any chance of becoming king in the future, she returned and agreed to marry him in order to stop him from ruining his royal chances. The pair were married in secret at Maria's home in Park Street in Mayfair by a chaplain whom George had released from debtor's prison by paying his arrears for him, as he knew he would happily return the prince's favour of a good deed by carrying out the illegal wedding. The pair were now wed, and little did either of them know they would remain married until George's death 45 years later. The relationship with Maria throughout the whole of their marriage ran hot and cold due to George's wandering eye and tendency to forget about his wife in favour of whichever new mistress he was courting at the time, but nevertheless he was still married, and this did mean that he was committing a crime marrying another woman. To make matters worse for his new marriage, the majority of the attendees at the wedding were all well aware of his relationship and love for his new bride's lady-in-waiting, Lady Jersey whom was also in attendance, to witness her boyfriend getting married to a lady whom she'd already voiced her distaste towards, directly to her face from the first day of meeting. All of which must have made for an interesting and unhappy ceremony to bear witness to. However, the two said I do, and their marriage of convenience was complete. After the wedding, the first marital hurdle for George and Caroline to cross was to consummate their marriage. 
Despite their obvious dislike for each other and their apparent lack of attraction, the two did eventually manage to lie back and think of England, but not on the wedding night, as George, after his brandy indulgences earlier in the day, was too inebriated, having collapsed by the fireplace in a drunken stupor. But the next morning, the deed was done, and on the first try, Caroline became pregnant, which was lucky for the both of them, as they never had to do it again. Within two weeks of the marriage, George and Caroline had already grown tired of one another, they refused to dine with each other at their evening meals, and soon they both decided it was best to stay as far away from each other inside the palace as possible. With George's debts now settled by his union to Caroline, he continued his usual shenanigans of gambling and also courting Lady Jersey. But for Caroline, she was mainly left alone and bored as she had no friends in England and had not been allowed to make any with George keeping her locked up inside the palace. The prince restricted Caroline's visitors and only allowed guests whom he knew would be tedious for her to spend time with. He restricted her socialising to mainly old ladies, who she found the company of insufferably dull. To punish her further, she was allowed to spend time with her lady-in-waiting, Lady Jersey, but as the two despised each other due to them sharing the same man, the conversations must have been few and far between. Pregnant and alone, Caroline had nothing to do but sit around and wait for the baby to be born. To alleviate her boredom, she began writing to the papers to let them know of her mistreatment and not sparing any lurid detail of how the prince was ignoring her. The papers published the letters and became sympathetic toward her situation. They sided with the neglected princess and said she was being treated as a state prisoner. This meant that the general public were now endeared to the poor, lonely, pregnant princess, and George, already unpopular, was now despised by his loyal subjects. Caroline gave birth at the palace on the morning of the 7th of January, 1796, to a baby girl and named her Princess Charlotte Augusta. Caroline was encouraged to use the staff provided to her, including a governess, to care for her baby, and even though she adored her daughter, she wasn't expected to have much contact with her at all. Just after Charlotte was born, George developed a fever and thought he was about to die. To make sure his wishes would be stuck to in the event of his untimely death, he wrote his will in which he left his entire estate to Maria Fitzherbert. He also wrote specific instructions for his burial and for the subsequent burial of Maria, saying that as and when Maria were to die, his coffin should be removed from the ground and the two inner walls of both coffins be removed to make one giant coffin so the two could be together forever. He also instructed that the jewels from Caroline's neck, which belonged to him, should be given to Princess Charlotte. And for Caroline one whole shilling. He made a full recovery a few days later from his illness, but never recovered fully from the embarrassment of the situation. Caroline, now emboldened by the fact she was mother to Princess Charlotte, and therefore couldn't easily or quickly be removed from the family by George, began writing to the prince, and made her feelings very plain about the pair's sham of a marriage. Bored with her company and the flaunting of their relationship, Caroline asked George that Lady Jersey be sacked from her position as lady-in-waiting. George wrote back to remind Caroline of the fact that she did know there would be extramarital relationships before they said their I do's, and he couldn't quite grasp what the issue was. Caroline replied to remind him that whilst he was having a great time without restriction, she was not allowed to do anything of the sort, and that if he were to consider just even being friends with her, it could make the whole situation much easier on both of them. 
George retorted that he was fed up with her making his house obnoxious to him and that he would be continuing his affections toward Lady Jersey. Caroline had heard enough. She sent a final letter to George outlining plainly his flaws and that should he accidentally create another heir with one of his mistresses, she'd be most annoyed. George too had reached the end of his tether and in his final letter he stated as they were both clear and understood on all matters they should both go their separate ways and cease communication altogether. Due to Princess Charlotte and the marriage being relatively new, no divorce was sought, as this wouldn't have benefited the already unpopular prince with the public. Despite having been given a royal telling off by Caroline, George still persisted with Lady Jersey and refused to fire her. Incensed at the prince's indelicate nature, Caroline wrote to the king, George's father, and as he wasn't fond of his foppish son either, he sided with the princess and ordered Lady Jersey to be asked to resign immediately. The papers somehow managed to receive a copy of Lady Jersey's indignant resignation letter, which was described as one of the most unpleasant letters they'd ever read. The source that sent the letter to the paper wasn't identified, but one can only assume that a disgruntled princess may have just stumbled across the letter and had accidentally thrown it in the direction of the Times journalists. Everyone now knew about the relationships between George and his mistresses, and the public despised him for it. He was booed when going out and about, and Lady Caroline was always cheered. This annoyed him greatly, as he felt he was deserving of the public's adoration. Bored at the palace and wanting to experience some of the English countryside, Caroline asked the prince if she would be allowed to go on a holiday. But as George was paranoid she was going to use the trip as a way of slandering him around the country, he declined her request. George ordered that the princess should stay cooped up in the palace for the foreseeable future, and at hearing the news, Caroline cracked. She requested a face-to-face meeting with the prince to voice her concerns in person. In a considered speech, she in no uncertain terms said she was done with his mistreatment of her. She said he'd never respected her as a princess, his wife, or even as the mother of his child and that from that point onward, she would no longer adhere to his rules or be under his order. George, having been confronted with his own bad behaviour head-on from the mouth of a woman who had no more left to give him, turned on his heels and left with his tail between his legs. After just two and a half years of marriage, it was all over for the couple, and George asked for the two to be divorced with the agreement of the king, but his father, perhaps knowing that Caroline would be subject to poverty if she was removed from the family, disagreed with his son's plan. Instead, Caroline was allowed to leave the palace, but remain married, and as such financially looked after. She moved to Montague House in Blackheath, situated in the historically royal Greenwich, and was much happier being away from the prince, where she could do as she pleased whenever she liked. Caroline was like a new woman, once she'd been allowed to leave the confines of the palace, and the prince's strict rule. She enjoyed her freedom greatly and was able to live her life the way she'd expected to when she was first offered her royal title. She threw banquets to make new friends, she courted many men, and had a great time without the oppressive rule of George looking over her. In the meantime, George, needy and incapable of being alone, and now with no wife or mistress to keep him entertained, he contacted his ex, Maria Fitzherbert. He wrote to her, saying he would give her everything she ever desired if she were to come back to him, and if that were not enough, he would commit suicide. Maria must have rolled her eyes reading George's letter, 
but again, in order to save him from himself, she came to his rescue, and the two were once again an item. For the next few years, things were quite calm between George and Caroline. He was occupied with Maria, and had apparently fathered two children to her, which had been shipped off to Scotland in the fear that they may threaten his royal reputation. And Caroline was occupying herself with helping the less fortunate by befriending many people from the local area who needed her help. The pair adhered to the old adage, out of sight, out of mind, but things were about to become ugly with the help of some nosy neighbours. Caroline was seemingly having a great time in Blackheath and wasn't conservative in her behaviours when it came to the men she was courting. A list was sent to the prince, which included the names of all of her lovers who had been seen frequenting Montague House, as observed by her neighbours, Lord and Lady Douglas. The Home Secretary, Lord Liverpool, was sent the list and took it to the prince to enlighten him of Caroline's behaviour and also to convey his suspicions that Caroline may have had a child with one of these men, as there was now a baby living at her house. The list included notable gentlemen, such as Sir Thomas Lawrence, a painter, George Canning, an MP and future Prime Minister, Admiral Sidney Smith, a navalman, Captain Thomas Manby, and Henry Hood, the son of a highly regarded naval officer. But the complaints didn't end there. Lady Douglas also told Lord Liverpool that she was a horrid neighbour and would often send them harassing letters and lewd drawings. One time when visiting her, Lady Douglas said that she was touched inappropriately by the princess and equally didn't understand how Caroline could be friends with so many men without being romantically involved with each of them. Lady Douglas also confounded the suspicion of Caroline having had a child born out of wedlock and said that she had been told by the princess herself that she was pregnant. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Caroline was fond of children, and having had to leave her dearest Charlotte behind in the palace to be cared for by nannies, and with only the occasional visit allowed to take place, she began fostering orphans and making sure they were educated and well looked after. One mother in particular, a working woman by the name of Sophia, had seen the kindness of the princess and had accepted her generous offer of help to get her baby William cared for at Montague House, where he would never go hungry and could be visited any time she wanted to. The staff at the house were interrogated as part of a secret government-led commission called the Delicate Investigation, in the hope that if Caroline could be found to have been lying and had produced an illegitimate child, she could be divorced by the prince and cut off from the royal payroll. The staff, when questioned, didn't hold back in saying what they had encountered at the household. One went into detail of how she discovered Caroline and Admiral Sidney in such a compromising position that she fainted. 
Another recounted a similar story. Another maid said she'd heard Caroline saying that she could easily get pregnant and no one would notice if she did. Eventually, William's mother, when hearing of the questioning, came forward to talk to the authorities. She said that she was told by Caroline the boy would be brought up as a prince and thinking this would remove her child from the abject poverty he was in, she agreed and handed him over to her and was grateful for her charity. With the parentage of the mystery baby quashed, the delicate investigation was closed and the commission ceased. However, once again, the press caught hold of the story and George was put in the firing line by the public for his hounding of the princess. As the years ticked by, the royal family continued to ignore Caroline and to keep her at arm's length. Growing exponentially bored with being sequestered, she entertained herself by becoming increasingly outrageous in her behaviour. She began dressing more eccentrically, and her need for amusement was beginning to irk those in the upper echelons. Her riotous behaviour was seen as too extravagant for a princess, and as word got back to the prince, he was disgusted that his wife was behaving in this manner, especially as he was still footing the bill. Caroline's behaviour continued to please the public, and they felt that she was not above them, unlike the prince, and was trusted, which just increased George's hatred for her tenfold. By this time, King George III was deteriorating, and his mental condition was causing him to be unreliable in his ability to rule. This meant that George was now able to step into the position he'd wanted, and once again became Prince Regent to take over from him until such time as his father got better, which was proving to be an unlikely outcome, or he died. One of the first things George enacted with his new power was to continue to make Caroline's life a living hell. He restricted her access to Princess Charlotte even further than he had before, and made it so the two could never meet alone and never at Caroline's house. But Caroline was no fool, and knew that she could use this restrictive visitation order against George to again reinforce his cruelty toward her to the British public. She hired a lawyer, Henry Braun, who scribed a delightful repose letter to George, telling him his restriction wouldn't be enacted without a fight. And with Caroline's knowledge of the press, she knew it would be better to send it to the papers directly for publishing, so the public knew exactly what he was up to. The letter was published in the paper, and once again George was outed to the public for the callous fellow he was. When the Battle of Waterloo and victory over Napoleon happened in 1815, the prince threw many parties to celebrate. He invited anyone who was anyone, except for Caroline, and again publicly showing his dislike of her. Realising that she would never be accepted as the royal she wanted to be, she decided she would be better off moving away from England and going to live out her days abroad. Hearing the news that Caroline was departing London in search of sunnier climes, Prince George celebrated with his new paramour, Lady Hartford, who had now replaced Maria Fitzherbert as she had once again been usurped by yet another mistress and fallen out with the prince. Now on her grand tour, Caroline was having a fantastic time gallivanting across Europe. However, English people who encountered Caroline abroad were disgusted by the way she was conducting herself. Letters that reached George were hell-bent on describing her outfits, or lack of them, in great detail to him. Her attire at parties would often raise many eyebrows, as she was usually bare-chested or wore incredibly inappropriate items. Lord Liverpool, now the Prime Minister, had been instructed to keep a close eye on Caroline's journey around Europe, and to keep him informed of her movements, and to report back if she was bringing shame on her royal title. Liverpool recounted several interesting choices of dress from Caroline to the Prince, at a post-hunt ball, she rode up to the reception wearing half a pumpkin on her head. At another gathering, she wore an ill-fitting child's dress, which exposed her cleavage, 
and on another occasion in public, she was seen wearing pink calf-length boots and a very short dress showing far too much leg than was respectable for the time. Even though Caroline was far away in Italy, and the prince needn't have sought annoyance from her actions, he couldn't help but be perturbed by her carefree lifestyle, and yet again he set up another investigation into her behaviour in the hope that he would be able to uncover ample evidence to divorce her. Having now settled at a spacious villa in Lake Como in Italy, Caroline had a new set of staff from the local area whom she treated like an extended family. She would dine with them and they all became friends with her. She was even said to have fallen in love with her coachman, Bartolomeo Pagami, a tall and hirsute burly gentleman whom had seen a rather quick promotion through the ranks and was now her right-hand man, often spending much longer in the princess's parlour than was expected of him which led to rumours that the two were romantically involved, which found their way back to the prince. To make matters worse, after one particularly extravagant and overindulgent boat cruise around the Mediterranean with her staff and friends, Caroline entered Jerusalem whilst riding on the back of a donkey, with 200 followers behind her. She then announced the creation of the Order of Caroline, and appointed Pagami as Knight of Malta, perhaps not quite knowing where she was. As Caroline and George were squabbling over their petty endeavours, news came through that their daughter, Princess Charlotte, had died. At the age of just 19, Charlotte had married her beloved husband, and both of them were enamoured with each other. The two had moved to the countryside to live quietly away from prying eyes and to start a family. Charlotte had been ecstatic when she found out that she was pregnant a year later. But throughout the duration of carrying her pregnancy, she had numerous complications, which resulted in her having an excruciating 40-hour-long labour, which produced a stillborn son. And just a few hours later, Charlotte herself passed away too, from blood loss. And with that, the future Queen of England was dead, and the country thrown into a period of mourning. Normal life ceased in England for two weeks to observe a period of grief for the poor princess and her baby boy. Shops were closed, schools were on hiatus, and the whole country drew to a halt. Even crime rates dropped. Neither Caroline nor George attended the funeral due to their grief being too significant and painful, but the funeral was so well attended that the mourners spilled out of the church, and people wore black for a long time after to commemorate the loss of the young princess. With Caroline and George observing a requisite period of mourning, they ceased fighting for a small amount of time, but it wasn't long before the feud was reignited. With Charlotte's death, George had lost his chance of continuing his royal lineage, and the rush was now on for George to divorce Caroline so he could remarry and produce an heir. But at the age of 55, the chances of his younger siblings doing so was far more likely. Exacting their grief of losing their daughter upon each other, Caroline and George again began feuding, and as such, George delved deeper in sending minions to spy on her in Italy. They reported that Caroline had lewd paintings of herself commissioned and gifted them to Pagami, who hung them with pride in his bedroom. Reports from a further 85 presumably bribed staff and acquaintances also confirmed the rumours of her adultery. This should have been enough evidence for the prince to finally prove her adulterous ways and to secure a divorce, but luckily for Caroline, some excellent timing was observed by King George passing away. The prince tried to stop any news of the king's death reaching Caroline, but she had already heard within hours of his passing, and the race to get back to England was on. Knowing she would now be entitled to be the Queen of England next to George, she began her journey back to London to take her rightful place on the throne. Panicking, George sent a government official, Lord Hutchinson, 
to intercept her and tracked her down just before making it to the port of Calais, where she would board a boat to return to England. Braum, Caroline's lawyer and an MP for the opposition, once again stood by her side and arrived at Calais knowing that the princess needed fair representation and protection from the king's government. Knowing she was in an incredibly strong position to negotiate, Caroline listened to what Hutchinson had to offer. £50,000 per annum, around £2 million in today's money, was offered to the princess with the requisite that she stay abroad for the rest of her days and not bother George, and presumably whomever else he married in the future, and he too would do the same. She was also expected to take the lesser title of Duchess of Cornwall instead of seeking her rightful title as Queen. Caroline, knowing her endurances throughout her life were worth more than what the prince had to offer, decided she would push further and pursue her royal place on the throne alongside George. Even though she despised him, she knew that the public would want her as Queen, and she wasn't wrong. As she made her way from Calais towards London, she was cheered by the public all the way from Dover as she passed by. A gathering 10,000 strong met her at Canterbury, and it was obvious to everyone except George that she would be his Queen. News got back to George of the Princess's success with the public on her journey, and knowing that Caroline wouldn't rest until she was crowned, he knew he would have to oppose her in any way he could. He firstly tried to cancel his coronation, and to instead have a quiet ceremony at the palace, but Lord Liverpool said that couldn't happen, as the public would be most disgruntled, and there would be riots if he did things underground, and he, as Prime Minister, couldn't allow it. George countered that if Liverpool didn't work out his divorce and fast, he would be looking for a new job. With the ultimatum on the table, Liverpool worked as hard as he could to come up with a plan which would finalise the divorce once and for all in order to save his place in Parliament. The general public were excited at the prospect of Caroline soon becoming Queen, so much so that mobs formed in the streets singing her praises and cascading revelry wherever they went, and some riots broke out due to rumours that she wouldn't be joining George on the throne. With the government growing displeased at the rowdy crowds, they had to push towards quieting them by outing Caroline as a confirmed adulteress, so they could strip her of a title before the coronation could take place. As such, they passed a bill called Pains and Penalties, which was designed entirely to strip Caroline of her title. George's adultery, however, would be completely ignored and he wouldn't be called to stand trial at all. He wouldn't even be mentioned as the person who had asked for the investigation. The public were understandably annoyed and upset by this, even the upper echelons, who had previously despised the Queen and her outrageous behaviour, thought that this was a step too far. As the trial began, even Caroline's most trusted staff were called into the dock and questioned about her relationship with Pagami. Almost a hundred people regaled sordid details of her and Pagami's relationship, but the witnesses were not deemed credible, as many had differing stories from one another or changed their testimonies when cross-examined. The whole case was the talk of the town, and the whole of England were glued to the papers. The prince had desperately wanted to air Caroline's dirty laundry in front of the public, in the hope that they would be disgusted by her sins. However, most found the trial an indignance that a princess shouldn't have to endure, especially when everyone knew that the prince had plenty he was hiding too. Countless petitions began circulating against the trial, and Caroline was visited by many people who believed her treatment by the prince to be incredibly misogynistic. Braum, who was representing the princess, was convinced that many of the staff who had testified against Caroline were giving false accounts in return for bribes. 
This was propagated in the press as well, that the accounts were unreliable, and as the staff were all from Europe, the papers said that this made them unreliable as they bore no loyalty toward Her Highness and her sovereignty. The trial dragged on for three months, with Caroline in attendance for every day of it, whilst George had sequestered himself in Windsor Castle in order to keep a low profile from the baying public. This worked well for Braun, as without an adequate representation at the trial to stand up for him, the prince and his actions towards the princess were presented without rebuttal. Eventually, due to a lack of credible evidence, mounting pressure from the public and a one-sided case, the trial was drawn to a close and the bill was withdrawn, meaning it wouldn't be seen in the Commons, and Caroline was still not divorced from the prince, much to his annoyance. Everyone was delighted that Caroline had been acquitted, and for five days and nights, celebrations were carried out by the public. However, as Caroline's dirty laundry had been aired in public, it was a hollow victory for her, and the prince had been successful in changing some people's attitudes towards her. But not one to let things get her down, Caroline got back on the proverbial horse, and continued to fight for what was rightfully hers. George was now planning his lavish coronation, and was gambling that the support from the public toward Caroline was starting to dwindle. But despite his best efforts at dragging her name through the mud, this wasn't the case. In a polite letter, she contacted the prince to ask him what dress he would like her to wear on the day. Unsurprisingly, she didn't receive a response, but I'm sure the smoke from his ears could probably be seen emanating from Windsor Castle for miles around. In order to ruin any chance of Caroline attending the coronation, a plan was struck to make it a ticketed event, and the guards were briefed explicitly that unless anyone had a ticket, they wouldn't be allowed in. Guessing that her ticket had somehow got lost in the post, the princess arrived at Westminster Abbey in her full royal regalia coronation gown. She was halted by guards as she tried to enter, and they held bayonets toward her to stop her rushing into the abbey. Understandably, she protested and reminded the gentleman on the door that she was the Queen. She went and tried several doors to gain entry, but either they were locked or heavily guarded. The crowds outside stood and watched the poor princess run from door to door, frantically trying to get inside, but try as she might, she eventually gave up and was booed by the waiting crowds, who, after witnessing her desperation, turned against her. After all her efforts and hardships, the Queen was now a nobody. Just a few short weeks after her public humiliation at the Abbey, Caroline collapsed with excruciating stomach pains. Her doctors tried to save her, but after three weeks of being bedridden and her condition deteriorating rapidly, she knew that she would soon pass away. Her physicians thought she had an intestinal obstruction, but rumours began to surface that perhaps she had been poisoned at the request of the king, but there was no way of knowing if this was true. She asked Braun to make the arrangements for her body to be buried back in Brunswick, as she wanted to be with her father in the family vault, and in no way did she want to remain in England for all eternity. She said she knew she wouldn't die without pain, but she did want to die without regret. Caroline passed away quietly, surrounded by her friends, at her home in Hammersmith. She was 53 years old. When George found out about Caroline's death, he was boarding a boat bound for Ireland, He ordered the ship to travel with flags half-mast as a sign of respect toward her, and on arrival, he seemed in high spirits, but was also in true George fashion, thoroughly inebriated. Whether this was as a result of glee or grief, or perhaps a mixture of the two, no one will ever know. As one last request, Caroline had asked her friends to carry out one final deed on her behalf, 
As her body lay in its coffin, waiting to be collected for its journey back to Brunswick, her friends had the nameplate replaced from the standard Caroline of Brunswick to the more truthful, here lies Caroline of Brunswick, injured Queen of England. In order to move Caroline's body to the ports of Harwich, a hundred miles away, the government instructed that she be taken on a quieter route away from the general public of London. This was said to be a precautionary measure in order to steer the coffin away from the gangs of revellers and ne'er-do-wells. However, what was more likely was that George wanted minimal attention paid to his deceased wife. Even in death, he was still jealous of her popularity. On the morning of the procession, crowds gathered and interfered with the blockades, so the route had to be amended, sending it through the heart of the city. Men on horseback, military gentlemen, and people from all walks of life came together to ensure Caroline had one last public outing. As the chaos multiplied, the guards of the cortege made their way into the crowd and began shooting at people to disperse them. Two men, Richard Honey and George Francis, were both shot by guardsmen, and both died of their injuries, leading to an inquest which was inconclusive, but a monument which was funded by their respective friends and co-workers still stands for the pair at St Paul's Church in Hammersmith. Somehow, Caroline's coffin made it to Harwich, and as her body was loaded onto the ship to begin its journey back to Germany, it was noted that the nameplate on the coffin had been removed. It was eventually replaced with a Latin nameplate, which was far more regal in its wording. At her funeral in Brunswick, 20,000 mourners formed a cortege to watch Her Highness go to her final resting place. Her resplendent red velvet-covered coffin was carried by 60 women holding candles and wearing white dresses adorned with a black mourning sash. They carried her coffin into the crypt of the cathedral and laid her next to her father. It's hard to know what would have happened to Caroline if she were not picked to be the prince's wife. With her upbringing having been restrictive and oppressive, she may have been resigned to a quiet life in a small German town. Caroline no doubt changed the way women were treated, particularly when it came to the rights of their divorces. Women had the most to lose in the case of divorces, as it was just expected that men could do as they liked without any recourse whatsoever, but women could be divorced if they did the same, which brought the double standard into the spotlight. Caroline was adored by her public, and did a lot to instil the sense that benevolence should be one of the key factors of being a royal, and subsequent princesses of Wales have followed her lead. It's impossible to not draw parallels of Caroline's life and that of Princess Diana, who, when holding the identical title as her counterpart, also suffered similar indignities at the hands of the tabloids, as well as her peers and husband, almost 180 years later. For Caroline, her life may have been difficult and filled with heartbreak, but she made the best of a bad situation, gave as good as she got to those who tried to oppress her, and lived her life with the purpose of being the people's princess all whilst wearing a fabulous hat. Thank you for joining me for that episode of Macabre London. Got just a few things to mention before you disappear. If you like that episode, then please subscribe, give it a thumbs up, and let me know what you thought of Caroline below. And more importantly, why the prince was allowed to get away with his behaviour and she wasn't. I'd like to now point out that we've also reached 500 subscribers on the YouTube channel, which is incredible and, um, yeah, just amazing. So thank you if you've subscribed on YouTube. If you're listening to the podcast and you haven't subscribed on YouTube, then what are you doing? Get over there, have a look. The videos contain plenty of images from the time which really bring the podcast to life so it'd be lovely to have you there just search for macabre london on youtube and you will find us 
in order to celebrate the 500 subscribers i'm actually doing a giveaway on instagram which includes one of the lovely macabre london t-shirts so pop over to the instagram page which is macabre london podcast and join in with the giveaway there if you like the show and you'd like to support us further then please head over to patreon where you can sign up for tears for as little as one dollar and support the show in return for goodies extra content and weekly update videos as well and also access to those exclusive t-shirts as usual head to the description below and you'll find all the links there for everything that i've mentioned thank you for joining me for another macabre tale from london's past i've been nikki Drews, and i'll see you next time Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.